go. You will be helped this morning if you have your Bibles to turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 5. I realized this week as we were sitting around the cabin at vacation how antiquated some of my statements have become from the pulpit because now I should be really saying, please click through to the book of Joshua because most people are tapping devices. Joshua chapter 5, we'll read starting in verse 13 in a few moments. When I was a young boy, I can remember getting my first Bible uh, that had words in it, a real Bible. Um, And I remember opening it. This was soon after I I learned to read, and I can remember this very vividly, flipping through my new Bible and and wondering where all the stories were. Because in Sunday school, you're, you're taught the Bible stories, right? You're taught David and Goliath and Jonah and the whale and Daniel and the lion's den. And I couldn't find them. And it took me a while to realize that the Bible's more than just stories, but they're there. Well, we all love those Bible stories. And if I date myself a little bit, uh, I'll, you'll remember, anybody remember flannel graph? How many people can remember flannel graph? Okay, I don't date myself too badly then, but that's how we learned the Bible stories, right? The, the, the felt figurines that the teacher would put. This was the first PowerPoint, by the way. You know, so my generation was PowerPoint way before this current generation. But that's how we learned these Bible stories. And I, I, as I got older, I started to realize that the flannel graph versions of the stories are a little different than they actually happened. These are always very, you know, kind of sanitary and happy and nice. And, um, but they didn't really happen that way. So I want to talk a minute here about what is a Bible story. Well, a Bible story is a type of literature that we call historical narrative. Historical narrative. It's a faithful account of what actually happened in history. The writer wrote down factually exactly what happened when God interacted with his people. But the question is, what do we do with the Bible stories? How do we preach the Bible stories? What do we learn from the Bible stories? Now, if you've been here for the last few weeks or months, we're privileged to already have the foundation because Keith has been doing exactly that, preaching through the life of Abraham. And what he's been doing is showing us that in the life of Abraham, we have examples. Examples of what it's like to be faithful to God. Examples of what happens when we're faithless. And it's right to do that from the Bible stories. Paul even says what was written in the former days, that's the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. And then he goes on to say that what happened to them, here he's talking about Old Testament Israel, what happened to them was written as an example. And it was written down again for our instruction. So when we take these Bible stories and we look at them, we are meant to to see them as examples of how we're to live. But if we stop there, if we just learn a few life lessons, we will have left the best of spiritual food on the table. It would be like going to the buffet and bypassing the meat section to hit the salad bar. That would be wrong. You know, if you were, if you were there at Keith's party last night, we had the, the sacred pig was roasted and, got, and died for us. It was amazing, the meat. And that's what we, what we want to get out of the Bible stories. We want to get life lessons, but we also want to get the spiritual meat. Keith's also been doing this in the life of Abraham. Jesus Christ himself did this in his own life. You'll remember 
when he walked after his resurrection with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, what did he do with the Old Testament stories? He said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, the, the, the whole point of the Bible is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus Christ. The New Testament reveals Jesus Christ. And so we can't preach the old Bible stories, the classic flannel graph stories, without looking see how they point us forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to take up the example of Jesus Christ this morning, and I'm going to take the example of my hero, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who when asked how he approached preaching, he said this, I take up my text and I make a beeline to the cross. Well, that's what we're going to do with Joshua in the, in the walls of Jericho this morning. We're going to take up the text, we want to look at what it says, and then we want to make a beeline to the cross of Jesus Christ. Where are we in redemptive history? Keith has been going through the life of Abraham, so we can fast forward after Abraham. You'll remember that Abraham's descendants went down into Egypt, and they became slaves, and they multiplied greatly. And then you'll remember that God, through Moses redeemed his people from the slavery of Egypt and brought them out with a mighty hand. That exodus itself is a picture of our own redemption that we have in Jesus Christ when he redeemed us from a life of sin and brought us into the new covenant. You'll remember then that he took them to Mount Sinai and he gave them the law. He entered into a covenant with them. And he said, I'll I'll live in your midst and I'll teach you how to live in right relationship with me. That hadn't happened to any other nation on the earth until Israel. Then you'll remember he promised them through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, again at Sinai, he said, I'm going to take you to a good land. I'm going to take you to rest, a promised land flowing with milk and honey, a good land. He took the people to the land of Canaan, to the promised land, and you'll remember that they rebelled. They were scared to go in. And so God punished that generation, and he forced them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years till that generation died out. Well, that generation has now died. Moses himself has just died. And, jo- and God has, has chosen Joshua, God's right, or J- Moses' right-hand man, to lead the people of Israel. They, they've just entered into the land of Canaan. You'll remember that when they approached Israel, the, the, they were on the other side of the Jordan and it was flooded. It was in flood season. There was no way to get across. And God created a Red Sea experience where he parted the waters of the Jordan and the people went into the promised land on dry ground. And that's where we pick up our story here in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13. I'm going to read verse 13 through almost the end of chapter 6. And in my opinion, these two should be together, these two narratives. They shouldn't be broken apart by a chapter break. And that's how we'll approach it this morning. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, no, or neither, but I am the commander of the army of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And and the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. 
You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Covenant. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the walls of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, every one straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called to the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was, guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I, I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came to the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before the Lord, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. The second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, and so they did for six days. And on the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and the gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout and the walls fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and the gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's house and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Well, that's our story. I don't think it's quite the flannel graph version. I've, I've always wondered um, how accurate that is. It will help us when we come to the book of Joshua to understand the theme of the whole book. And the theme of the book we need to keep in mind is that Yahweh gives the land to his people. 
He's giving them the land. If you were to read the first six chapters of Joshua through about 12 times, you'll find this referenced. Either the Lord saying, I'm giving you the land, or somebody else saying, the Lord is giving us the land. He's giving us the land. He's giving us the land. Now, the, the land was being given to them by promise. He had promised it to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He promised them rest in a good land, in an abundant land, if they obeyed the voice of Yahweh they obeyed their God and lived in covenant faithfulness to him. But see, there was a problem. Israel had a task to do. God might be giving them the land, but the land was occupied. And so they had a task to perform. And their task was to build the kingdom. The kingdom of Israel was to be built in the promised land. But they had to, well, to do so, they had to conquer a hostile land. And in this, they were instruments of Yahweh's judgment. God had decided to judge the people of Canaan for their sin. And you'll see the theme over and over again through the book of Joshua that the people were devoted to destruction. And the the people of Israel were called to be instruments of that judgment. Now, what I want to do today is I I want to try to really put us into this, this story. I want us to be there. I want us to understand what was really going on. What were the people really feeling and sensing? So that, so that we can really get the most out of it. Because I don't think Flannel Graph had it right. I, I don't think, as much as I love Veggie Tales, you know, Robin and I bought Veggie Tales before we even had kids and would sit on the couch and giggle. Uh, you, you know, back then when we had VHS tapes, we bought Veggie Tales. And this is how Veggie Tales uh, uh, portrays Joshua in the Big Wall. Bunch of little ragtag Israelites, you know, kind of wandering around the desert while the, the, the French peas on the wall kind of threw slushies at them and laughed at them. But that's not at all how it happened. As we come to Joshua 6, remember the, the people of Jericho were, are in their city. They thought that the, that the flooded Jordan would protect them for a while. But they saw a God that they had never witnessed before roll back the Jordan. And these people of Israel cross on dry land. This is no, no small multitude of people. The, the, the Israel are several million people strong. And if you were to look at Numbers chapter 26 and Joshua chapter 4 and reconcile the, the, the accounting of the army with the, in those two chapters, you'll find that Israel crossed with a standing army of 500,000 men. That's just the army. And the people of Jericho see the, the waters roll back. And this mass of people come across. You'll remember that Israel runs north to south with the Mediterranean Sea to the west and the Jordan River to the east, and it's sandwiched in between those. Jericho sits in the center of the uh, country, right there in the middle, on the Jordan Valley. And this is a photograph of that valley. You can picture this small city on this vast, low-lying plain. It's, it's the lowest city on the face of the earth, about 750 feet below sea level, with these mountains to the west and the Jordan River to the east. Now, Joshua was a brilliant strategist. He understood that if he took Joshua, he could divide the land. Once he divided the land and ran a wedge in between the land, then he could take out the south and the north at his leisure, which is exactly what happened when you read the book. Now, what what about this Jericho? What was he up against? This is an artist's conception of what it might have looked like. It's the oldest known city to archaeologists. They they can can date uh, uh, 
uh, human inhabitants there back as far as 10,000 years uh, B.C. That's a long time. It's an egg-shaped city. It only covers about six acres. It's about a football and a half, uh, a football field and a half wide and not quite three football fields long. It's, it's a small city. Had a set of double walls, about four and a half feet thick or so. That's my fishing uh, distances here. About four and a half feet, right? Uh, is that right, Keith? Read from here to the wall? Yeah, there you go. But four and a half feet made out of mud brick. And they were about 30 to 45 feet tall. They had a set of double walls. The, the inner wall was about 1,000 years old by this time. But the outer wall was rather new, about 100 years old maybe. And it's a small population. The city itself may have only uh, held about 1,200 people. And, and as you have refugees coming in, fleeing from the people of Israel, maybe had it swelled to about 2,000. So you get an idea. There, there's maybe 2,000 people here. And Israel's army is 500,000 people. You know, the borough of Shalfont, not where we are now, but just the borough itself holds about 4,000 people. That, that gives you an idea, the odds that we're dealing with here. To put it even, even more perspective, here's, here's our property at Grace Community Church, and you can see the Philadelphia Sports Club up there. If I were to lay the city of Jericho over this, it doesn't cover much more than the church property. Now, I'm so glad Jeff wasn't here this morning, not because I don't want him here, but because I was afraid that with an architect in the audience, he'd scrutinize these numbers too much. I'm an engineer, not an architect, so I, if you want to see the numbers later, I'll be glad to show them to you. But this is roughly what we're dealing with. This is small. And you have these millions of people that have just come across the Jordan. Well, you'll remember in chapter 2 of Joshua, if you remember the story at all, that Joshua had sent two spies into Jericho. They were saved by the prostitute Rahab. And Rahab, as we know from the book of Hebrews and the book of James, acted in saving faith in God and was so, so was redeemed and so was, was saved out of the, the destruction, was redeemed and brought into the camp of Israel. Rahab herself is part of the lineage of Jesus, as recorded in the Gospels. But when they were in there, Rahab recorded exactly what the people of Jericho were feeling. Rahab said to the spies, and notice how often she doesn't address Israel, she addresses the Lord. I know that the Lord has given you the land. There's that giving of the land again. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters, how the Lord performed these mighty acts. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there is no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's what the people were thinking and feeling within these walls. Utter terror at what was approaching. Utter terror. Well, the scene as we come to it here in chapter 5 is Joshua is scoping out the city. Now, he had a 500,000 man army, but Jericho was still an issue. He had foot soldiers, 45-foot walls, got to get through them somehow. Israel wasn't practiced yet in the art of siege warfare. So he, did, he was concerned about a plan. As he's outside of Jericho, this interesting individual comes up to him. 
He's identified as the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua, brave Joshua that he is, approaches him and confronts him. This man standing there with a drawn sword. Well, what does that mean? He's ready for battle. He's ready for a fight. He's coming with a purpose. And Joshua says, are you for us? Or are you for our enemies? Now, it's quite interesting, his response. But first of all, let's ask who this person is. Well, if we understand the phrase, commander of the Lord's army, that word army there is sawbaw in Hebrew. It's, it's the word for hosts. And it can be used of a, the hosts of the heavens, so to count all of the stars. It's a mass of things. It can be re- used as an army as it is here, a, a mass of, of men that, that uh, 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 com- uh, combine to form the army. And so what we have here is we have the Lord of hosts, Himself. This is one of the names of God. In the, in the spring, I'm going to have the opportunity to teach a discovery class through the names of God. This is one of the names we'll touch on. But this is Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. And that name refers to God as the mighty warrior king. And that's whose approach. This is a theophany. Whether it's of Christ, whether it's of God the Father, we're not, we're not sure. There are theories about that. But it's God himself in human form that has come down. And we know this for a number of reasons. First of all, his name. Second of all, he accepts worship from Joshua. When an angel was worshipped by a human being, the angel never failed to say, no, you don't worship me. I'm I'm a fellow servant. But he received worship. And his presence marked the location as holy. Just as, it, just as God's presence in the burning bush uh, made the, the area holy where Moses stood, he said, take off your feet, you're on holy ground. You're in the presence of the Lord of hosts. And if you, if, if, if you think that this end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 should be put together as I do, he's identified in verse 2 as the Lord. And he's arrived on the scene, but he's answered this question in a very unusual way. Shouldn't he have said, of course I'm for you, Joshua. That's why I'm here. You're my chosen people. But what does he answer? He answers no in the ESV. In the the NIV, they try to get the flavor of the translation. He says, neither. He says, I've come to you, Joshua, for a very important reason. You need to be reminded that standing behind the promise, standing behind the land, standing behind your guaranteed victory, standing behind all your activities is me. I am the mighty warrior king. I've come with drawn sword, and it's my actions that are going to ensure success. I will act for my purposes. This is so hard for us, especially as Western Christians. We don't like this part of God. And a lack of understanding of who God is creates creates a lot of angst in our lives. We want to know why things happen. The problem is we don't like the answer so often. Things happen for God's glory. That's what he's about. That's his business. His glory. That's why we exist. It's not about us. It's about him. And the more we embrace that, the more peace and the more joy we'll find in our Christian lives. But the beauty of God pursuing his own glory is that we get the benefits of it. In this case, he was lavishing grace upon Israel because by showing his glory to them and being gracious to them, he was bringing himself glory. He was also bringing glory to himself in judgment. He can't tolerate sin in his holiness. And so the people of Canaan needed to be judged for their sin, and Israel would be the instrument of that. So that's God's business, his own glory, 
that includes grace and judgment. And he comes and he gives Joshua some instructions. Now, if I was Joshua, I would be breathing a sigh of relief. Oh, God's going to tell us how to get under the wall. There's a secret cavern under there, and if we dig at the right spot, we're going to be able to tunnel in. Or blueprints, siege instructions, finally. Uh, Catapults, ram, all all kinds of things. You know, if you watch Veggie Tales, they created this missile that they were going to call the Wallminator, and they were going to blow up the wall with it. But that's, God comes and he gives them some very strange instructions. This is how I'm going to act on behalf of my people. And this is what I want you to do. Now, I've combed the archives, and I found some video footage of this encounter. And I'd like us to consider what was going on in Joshua's mind. Immediately fell face down on the ground in reverence. I'm sorry, I couldn't make that out. I said, what message does my lord have for his servant? Oh, really? That's what you said? Yes, that's what I said. Oh, all right. I come with directions from the lord. Great. What are they? Ah, yes. The Lord says to you, Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. March around the city once with all your men. Do this each day for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast, have all the people give a loud shout and the walls of the city may not be exactly how it happened but i think the shock on joshua's face may have been there i mean could you imagine now we know from the story they were faithful they carried out god's instructions but that doesn't seem to have any bearing on walls march around it blow trumpets you know god what's all this about but god had appointed a means whereby they would ensure victory It's necessary for God to remind Joshua that he stands behind the kingdom building. The instructions march around the walls. Now, we really really have to picture what this looked like. We we really do. And so I've, I've done some calculating again. And if Joshua woke up in the morning and they had to march from the camp and they had to come in and they had to circle around the city and and back out again, the weapons of that day... You know, anybody behind the city that could shoot at them probably would have. And so an arrow or a sling had an effective range of about 400 yards. So I I use that as my example, that Joshua stayed 400 yards away. And if he did that and he marched around the city, this is a circle of about a mile and three-quarter. It's a long hike, maybe depending on marching speed, 30, 45 minutes just to go around. So till he left, until he came back... you know, one lap is an hour or two. So, so you have to picture this. You're inside the walls of Jericho. You're already scared to death. And, and, and 
this massive army comes walking out of the wilderness. You can see the dust. They're walking in complete silence except the horns. And the horns are blowing. And the horns are blowing. For an hour or two, they're blowing. And they're blowing. And they're echoing off the mountain. And they're blowing. And you wonder what's going to happen. And they circle around the city. And they leave. Six days. On the seventh day, they don't stop. It, it had to take them at least four to six hours of marching in silence to get around the city. Those seven laps. It's a long time. And it's a massive army. Here's our Grace Community Church in our city of Jericho again. And the, the, as, good as, I, as good as I hope to be with Google Maps, this is proportional. If Joshua only took a fifth of his army... 100,000 men, and circled Jericho, it would be a column of men, about 30 men wide, circling Jericho. God said, take all your army. That's a column of men, 160 men wide. Conservative figures. All the way around the city. Their column was the width of the city. What were the people of Jericho thinking? The only thing they could think, we hope our walls hold. The only thing we have is our walls. Will they hold? Will they hold? And the trumpets were blowing, and the trumpets were blowing, and the trumpets were blowing. When the army hit the walls of Jericho, if you collapse that circle, if they ran straight on into Jericho, they would have been about 800 men deep when they hit the city. Overwhelming force overwhelming. Jericho didn't stand a chance. We hope our walls hold. We hope our walls hold. Well, the first time I preached through this, I I wondered what these trumpets sounded like. They're talking about the shofar. They're the ram's horn. And so YouTube wasn't good enough and audio wasn't good enough. I actually had to buy my own shofar. And if you know me at all, you have to go all the way. So this is actually... Uh, a kosher shofar from Israel. Priests had to bless it for public worship, so I guess it is. It's called a Yemenite shofar, and this is a tiny shofar. This is a little one. This is a portable one. I, I don't know how big the, the, they were, but they, they were blowing and blowing and blowing. Now, I don't have my trumpeteer with me. He's on his way to Haiti. So you're going to give me a little patience. You're going to try that as I try this. It takes me once or twice to get it working. I was practicing this morning in the house at 8 o'clock. But I made sure Robin was up first. But I want, you to pick, I want you to try to picture yourself hiding behind the walls, 100 degrees, sweating. The people are marching, and they're marching, and they're marching, and the trumpets are blowing, and they're echoing. And, and this is all you hear for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> They knew how to do it. Well, we know what happened. Hebrews tells us that by faith, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. The people entered the city. 
They devoted everything to destruction. Rahab and her family were saved because they exhibited faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the God of heaven. They could look out and they could see his works and they they knew enough to know that this God is the one true God. And so they were saved. With the fall of Jericho, Joshua established a beachhead in the the promised land. Just like in World War II, when, when our troops, along with our allies, when they hit the beaches of Normandy, when they stormed Normandy and took it by force at great loss of life, they established a beachhead in Europe. The war was over. For all intents and purposes, yes, there were months of fighting ahead. They had to beat the Germans back to their homeland. But the war was over. Once the beachhead was established, it was finished. And so it was for Jericho. Once Jericho fell, the beachhead in the promised land was established, and the kingdom of Israel was being built. And it was pillaging and plundering the land of the Canaanites. Well, what do we do with a story that's 3,500 years old? We've we've put ourselves into that place. We've sensed what it must have felt like. And what I'll tell you is that Jesus Christ is written all over these pages. Favorite class I had in seminary was Old Testament. A pastor of over 30 years taught the class, and the final paper was finding and preaching Christ from the Old Testament. Completely transformed my view of the Old Testament. Christ is here in all his radiant glory, in his person and his work. You see, the Old Testament saints had a promise, a promise of the land, a promise of rest. But even the Old Testament saints knew that ultimately that wasn't a piece of dirt on the Mediterranean. Abraham himself knew that ultimately it was a city that God was building. Ultimately, it was something more. The New Testament saints, we live in the New Covenant story. After Jesus Christ, we have the full picture. But for us, the theme is still the same. Yahweh is giving a land to his people. But now we understand we're being given a, a, a land in Christ. Peter himself reminds us of this when he says, according to his promise, that is Christ. We're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. As his new covenant people, as his church, we're waiting for the promised land. And it will be a tangible land that he will recreate called the new heavens and the new earth. But the stories are linked much tighter than that. The writer to the Hebrews understands this. Joshua, his Hebrew name is Yeshua. Joshua is a type of Christ. He points forward to the new Yeshua, Jesus. They both share the same Hebrew name. Just as Joshua led the people and began building the kingdom when he established the beachhead, so Jesus Christ is leading his people. And he established a beachhead when he came to earth, died on the cross, and began building his kingdom. The, book, the writer to the Hebrews understood this. The church's promise, what I've called New Covenant Israel, the church's promise is rest in a good land. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
Just as Joshua gave rest, Jesus is giving his people rest. When Joshua conquered Jericho, he established a beachhead that would ensure ultimate victory. And in this way, Joshua points to Christ. God himself, who who entered the world as a man, who went to the cross with sword drawn and hung as a lamb. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. He defeated evil. He defeated all of it for us. And with that victory, he established a beachhead on this earth. And since then, the kingdom of heaven has been rolling across the face of the earth, plundering the goods of the Canaanites. Jesus himself understood this in parable form when he said, if the the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. With his arrival and his authority over the evilness, He established a beachhead. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house? That's Christ entering the earth to plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. That's the defeat of Satan at the cross. He bound him so that he can plunder his house. And the plunder are all God's elect people who are saved, who will be saved through all history. The church of Jesus Christ is running rampant across the face of the earth. The kingdom is being built. And people are being plundered out of Satan's house. If you're here this morning and you're saved by Jesus Christ, you were plundered. You were taken out of the house of the strong man. You were saved. All because of the beachhead that Christ established at the cross. Now I'll let a little of my eschatology slip through a little bit. And I'll apologize for trampling on a sacred verse. But in my view, Revelation 20 is talking about now. It's the period of Jesus, when Jesus Christ, from his first coming to his second coming, this is the same thing as Matthew, but in visionary form, when he says, when he sees Satan being bound for a period of time, so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. Yes, Satan is alive. He's a well on planet Earth. He's powerful. But he can't stop the gospel. He can't stop the church. He can't stop the kingdom from being built. Now, for those of us who are in Christ this morning, for those of us who have seen our need for him, who have come to him for forgiveness of sin, who are part of the covenant people, we have a task. We've been promised rest by Jesus Christ. It's ensured. We're given the promise of, of a future land. But our task is to build the kingdom. Our task is to build the kingdom. Hebrews, again, let us strive to enter that rest. We're to conquer a hostile land. Isn't it a hostile land out there? We're to plunder the goods of the enemy by being Yahweh's instruments, not of judgment this time, but of gospel transformation. When you look at wake up in the morning and you see this, drink in these images for a minute. I'm not trying to make any kind of political or cultural statements by any of these images. It's just what we're confronted with. And this is the big stuff. This goes beyond the bills need to be paid and the kids need to be fed and the house needs to be cleaned and I have to go to work. All these things that we're confronted with. But when we confront this, what's our answer? What's our answer? 
how does the church confront it? Where, where, where's our hope? Is our hope in the political process? Not in any political process I've seen in my lifetime. Is it, is it in, in protesting? Is it in science? Is it in something else? Now, it's right for the church to be about social services. We're called to minister to people. It's, it's right for us to be part of the political process. He's given us a land where we can do that. But when we're confronted by this, the church needs to be reminded that the only answer to these photographs is the gospel. Because the gospel transforms lives. These photographs represent people who are hurting, people who are confused, people who are, who, who, who are, are kept down economically, socially, people who are hurting because of death and disease and sickness. They represent people who are filled with hate. What's the answer for those people? We can bomb them into oblivion, but they're going to come back. We, we can legislate them into oblivion, but they're going to come back. The answer is that they need Christ. They need to be transformed by the power of the gospel. And just as the instructions that were given to Joshua seemed totally inadequate for the task, walk around the city, blow horns, what good's that going to do, God? Those were the divinely appointed means for victory. And for us, the gospel is the divinely appointed means of victory. That's what we need to keep in mind as we face what we do. This is how the church answers the social dilemmas of our day. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, and on this rock, that's the rock of Jesus Christ and his gospel, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I wouldn't be doing Jesus Christ any service if I left here without asking you, who, who amongst you don't know him as Lord and Savior? You, you may be visiting for the first time. You may have been sitting in these pews for years. And you haven't answered the command to repent of your sin and come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Become part of the new covenant community. If you haven't, it's just like you're sitting behind those walls. You're the people of Jericho sitting behind the walls, hoping they'll hold. They might be walls of pride. They might be walls of confusion. They might be walls of shame. Maybe you're not good enough to come to Christ. Well, let me tell you, there's a whole room full of people here that could give you testimonies otherwise. And what I would ask you is, to be reminded that just as those walls came down, the trumpets are blowing. Judgment is coming. And your walls are going to fall in the end. But Jesus Christ has been gracious and has given us a time now to be saved. If you don't understand what that means, you can come to me afterwards. Come to anybody sitting next to you. And they would share, you, share with you the gracious message of Jesus Christ, the new Joshua. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled to be your people. We are humbled at the thought that Jesus Christ came to this earth and gave so much. 
to redeem people from every tongue and tribe, language and nation. And those of us that are here in this room who are in Christ are part of that redeemed people. And there are those in this room who are yet to be part of it. And I pray, Lord, that you would reach out in gospel-transforming power into their lives. Show them the wonders and the joys of a life in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, again for those in Haiti who are headed there now. I pray that they would be instruments of gospel transformation in the lives that they touch. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.